In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala So for today's jalsa, we will inshallah continue where we left off with the proofs for the existence of God. I think that the first proof that we presented has been generally speaking well understood. We recapped uh, the majority of what we said uh, two lessons ago uh, in the last lesson and I think we answered the majority of the questions. So we'll present uh, today's new proof and then if there are any questions, concerns regarding this one or the previous one, we can keep them for the discussion. Um, so the proof that we want to present today, the, the new demonstration, is called the proof from design. Uh, this one is known under different names. One of them is the teleological proof. So teleos, the word teleos basically means purpose or finality. When something has a goal, a purpose, a finality, that's called a teleos. The point of this proof is that we notice that there is order and design and purpose in nature. So we ask the question, where does that come from? And it needs to come from not only a designer that exists, but a designer who exists in a certain way. So it also says something about his attributes. So there are specific characteristics we started mentioning about these proofs. Each one of these proofs has, let's say, pros and cons or strengths and weaknesses. What we presented until now, the proof that technically speaking is called the proof of necessity and contingency or the necessary being, it's an entirely rational proof. It relies entirely on philosophical or rational premises and conclusions. And what we get out of it is the existence of a necessary being. And that's it. We get nothing else. So anything else we want to say about that necessary being, we're going to have to prove in independent further proofs. The proof that we want to present today, the teleological proof or the proof from design, not only gives us a conclusion that says there must be a necessary being, but not in the sense necessary. There must be a designer. So it proves the existence of a designer, God. And it also proves some of his attributes. That's one characteristic of this proof that's different from the other one. The second one is that it's a simple proof. Obviously, because it doesn't require the same, let's say, abstract notions that we have in the previous proof, it's a little bit more accessible to everyone. So this is a better proof. Let's say someone who has not studied or is not interested in very abstract notions and you want to talk with them about God, then this is a much better proof for ourselves and for others. And to me, when I say that specifically, let's say you have a, a younger sibling or you're going to have children, and the day you're going to ask, be asked, how do you prove the existence of God? This is perhaps the first proof to start with because everybody can understand it very intuitively. And we'll see, inshallah, in what way we mean. So on the one side, it's very simple. The notions that we have in it are very intuitive. Anyone will understand intuitively what we mean when we say order, design, purpose. Okay, so on one side, it's simple and it's accessible. So everybody, even though they may not have the foundations, the advanced studies, the abstract thinking, they should be able to understand it if it's presented properly. This is not to say that there is not a more technical way to present this proof that's a lot more advanced. There is. And there are notions that we're not really going to talk about today, but it, there are entire books written about this proof, both to prove it and to disprove it. But obviously, they go into a lot more detail. And there are certain notions, especially in current physics uh, used today, such as entropy and the anthropic principle, laws of thermodynamics, and... They're all used in this proof, okay? We're not going to mention them right now. But if anyone encounters them and they generate some doubts or concerns for you, we can come back and talk about them. So there are ways to present this proof in a much more technically advanced way. 
I don't think we need it. The commoners, the normal people generally, they don't need it unless they're specifically working on this proof from a, from a physics point of view or natural science point of view. Yes. But for the first point, is there uh, is there anything uh, like uh, to, to, to to debunk it other than they're trying to create something out of nothing? Of course, there are, for the necessary being, is there, are there any objections to it? There are objections to it. The main objection is basically, uh, if we say that everything has to come from nothing, then what does God come from? Who created God? That's the Richard Dawkins, you know, the line that he always writes, and he always repeats. And so I think we answered that, but if someone still decides to say, no, God also needs a cause, because they're... They refuse to, or they do not understand what it means when we say a necessary being. Then I guess it's up to them. I mean, logically we've proved it. So I think the main concerns with that one we've addressed them. So this is a new proof. We're going to see. I'll mention some of the weaknesses maybe in the discussion part. Not necessarily weaknesses. The objections that may be used against this proof too. Um, so all the proofs. All the proofs, obviously, there are people who do not believe in the existence of God. Any proof that you present, there have been people who have objected to them with their own arguments. But whether those arguments are valid or not, that's a discussion. To what extent they're valid. And in a lot of cases, it a lot of it depends on salam alaykum wa rahmatullah. A lot of it depends on to what ex, in what way you have presented the proof. If the proof is presented in a weaker way, and that's something we talked about, we said if what your claim is that everything needs a cause, then of course you're exposing yourself to God is a thing, he needs a cause. But if you presented that every contingent being needs a cause, that's it, you close the door to that. You cannot generalize that to everything needs a cause, and you've answered that. A lot of it depends on the strength or weakness of the way the proof is presented. So if it's technically presented well, then usually you, you've closed the door on a lot of the objections. Any case, we've said that some of the characteristics of this proof is that it proves the existence of a designer as well as some of his attributes. It's simple and accessible because also, in addition to what we've said, because it's not purely abstract. So of course there's a rational component like there would be for any argumentation. But in this case, it's a mix. You have the rational component, which is what do you do with the data? But the data doesn't come from reason. It comes from natural science. It comes from the external world. It's empirical data. And the examples that we're going to use, you're going to see they're all based on what we see and feel and hear and think about in the real world. So it's not entirely a rational construct. There is a component of it that we see and we have access to in the real world, so it makes it a lot simpler. The third component is more to us. So those are maybe more polemical reasons. You're in a debate, you're thinking, you're in a discussion about the existence of God. Maybe that's for someone else. But then there's also for you, for our purposes, for our own spirituality. This proof, a lot of people don't think about it that way. But for people who are interested in the religious experience, so spiritual experience, this proof is actually a very good starting point for that. If we really understand it, and I know we're spending a lot of time on the introduction, we haven't actually gotten to it, but once we get in and we explain it, keep in mind this last point, because I think it actually opens a whole world, a whole new door for us, which is the spiritual experience or the religious experience. You start seeing natural phenomena in a completely different way. And that can lead to what people refer to as the mystical experience. There's one way to look at it, and you see it only as a raw, natural effect, a chemical reaction, a physical reaction, and it stops there. It's a completely different experience if you keep in mind that mystical, spiritual aspect to it that makes you start seeing the connections between things and just how deep and how perfect they are, how rigorous they are, to what extent they've been designed with a specific purpose, and how it all ties together. And the more you understand nature, the more you study it, the more you can actually get a spiritual dimension out of that proof. So yes, there is a rational component. It's good for debate and polemics and all of that. But there's also a spiritual one. 
And the Holy Quran concentrates on this one in a lot of verses, but let's stop here for, for this point. So these are the main characteristics of this proof. Is it valid? And we've said that from the beginning. We don't want to spend too much time on proofs that have some weaknesses. And that's why I said I'm going to concentrate on two, although in the discussion, let's see your interest if you want to see some more proofs or not. Okay, so the proofs we want to present have to be very solid so that if we know them, instead of spending time learning eight proofs, but some of them are more open to, to critique and being debunked, as you said, let's concentrate on the ones that are very solid and let's learn them well. So is this proof in that category or is it more open to, to debating and debunking and, and objection? No, this one is actually a very solid proof. And maybe in the discussion I'll mention, as I said, where maybe there might be some weaknesses and basically how to answer them. The, in addition to the rational, logical foundations for this proof, which is one point, as believers, we also always want to see what does the Qur'an, what does the Holy Qur'an itself use? This is one of the proofs that the Holy Qur'an uses. Definitely, clearly. Throughout the Qur'an, we see that there is always reference to everything in nature being called, for instance, an ayah, a sign. A sign is basically something that refers to something else. And this is what we see in our daily lives. When you see a sign, a symbol or a sign, you're not supposed to look at the sign as a sign. When you see an arrow on the road, when you see a green light, you're not supposed to think, oh, look, there's a green light. The green light is supposed to mean something. It's a sign of something else. It refers to something else. To push it a little bit further, it's like an, a vector or a, an object, a hint, a reference to an object. You call on to that object once you see that sign. That's the purpose of a sign. So the Holy Qur'an refers to everything in nature in that way. That's the first thing. So basically the Qur'an is saying that everything in nature can be used as a proof for the existence of a designer because not only it says that it exists, but it exists in this designed way, in this orderly way, in this organized way, linked to everything else. It asks us to study it because there's a lot of perfection in it. And we talked a little bit about that from when we talked about the place of reason. So we're not going to repeat the verses. But we said there are hundreds of verses in the Qur'an that talk about different natural phenomena in the world. So why does it concentrate on that? Because that's one way to reach, access, understand the work of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So does it recognize this proof? Yes, it does. Again, in the discussion, we'll mention where someone may come in and say it doesn't work all the time. One of the names of this proof, we said in, in, uh, in, in English, usually it's referred to as the proof from design, the teleological argument. One of the names of this proof in Arabic, instead of, uh, in addition to Burhan al-Nawm or al-Nawam, they also refer to it as Burhan al-Ayat al-Afaqiyya. When they want to reuse the same terminology used in the Qur'an, the whole Qur'an has a verse that talks about at the very end of uh, Surah Fussalat, it says, We will show them our signs in the horizons, so basically in nature, and in themselves, until it becomes manifest to them that it is the truth. The it can be a reference to the Holy Quran or to the message of the Holy Prophet. Generally speaking, it's to the claims of this man called Muhammad and all the claims that he's making. We will show them that all this is true. But through what? Through two means. Through signs on the horizon, which is a reference to external signs. And the Qur'an, Fil-Afaq, so they refer to it as Al-Ayat Al-Afaqiyya. As opposed to Al-Ayat Al-Anfusiyya. Okay, so we will show them our signs, basically outside of themselves and inside of themselves. Internal and external. So this is one of the names, and this further confirms that the Holy Qur'an recognizes this proof as one of the valid proofs for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so what is the actual proof? In logic or in philosophy, they say that a proof is constructed, an argument is constructed of premises. A premise is simply a statement, a logical statement. So what are the premises or the statements for this proof? We condense them into two. 
The world has design. That's statement number one. Statement number two, and design requires a designer. That's it. That's the proof. So everything else we're going to say is an explanation of these two statements. So when we say the world has design, what do we mean? First of all, design can be looked at at two different levels when we say design. Design can be, there's two, let's say, orders of magnitude, two layers. One of them, one category, one layer, one order, is if I look at a thing in itself. So if I look at any natural phenomena, and I look at any natural entity in the world, and I study it, do I find, do I find that it has any purpose? It's as though it performs a certain function. One, and we're going to explain that a little bit more. So that's what we refer to as, does it have order or design or purpose? That's one. And that's one layer. So that's one order. The second order is that we do not look at one entity on its own. I don't look at one thing. I start connecting that thing to other things. One way to look at things in the world is to say there are parts and then you just put parts together and they become holes. And the whole is just the sum of its parts. So to put it in mathematical terms, it's like one plus one equals two. There's nothing else. Okay? Which seems simple and logical and normal. The problem is when we look, when scientists have looked at nature, they've noticed that it doesn't actually work that way in nature. It's like you put one plus one and at some point you get three, not two. Okay. What do we mean? I'm, I'm just using an analogy here to, to make it uh, clearer. If I look at the cells that form an organ, if I look, let's say, at the cells forming the liver, you look inside the liver and you see cells. The cells on their own are not mini livers that all put together become a big liver. The cells are each performing their own duty. So you can look at them as specific entities. And at some point, somehow, this sum of parts, these are just parts, somehow they perform a function that is different than the function of every part. So the whole is bigger than just the parts. It's not just the sum of the parts. You cannot just put a random number of cells together and expect to produce a liver or a heart or a brain. There's a jump. There's something that happens that in, in this kind of theory, there are so, now it's a field in, in, uh, in certain sciences. This is called complexity theory. There's a field that emerged initially from sociology that was called general systems theory. From that, a new field emerged called complexity theory. And they say this is emergence. Emergence happens when, when you put things together, they're just things, and nothing else is happening. And then at some point, something else happens. You have hydrogen on its own. Hydrogen on its own has certain functionality, has certain characteristics. It's an entity, right? Well known, chemically, physically, we know what hydrogen is. We also know what oxygen is. It's just what it is. It's an entity and it has certain characteristics. It behaves in a certain way. And somehow, if you put oxygen and hydrogen in just the right way, you get water. Water is not hydrogen and it's not oxygen. And it's not just what you would expect to see just by combining hydrogen and oxygen together. So they would call this emergent an emergent entity. There's a, it's like a jump that happens. It's not just the sum of the parts. It is the sum of the parts, but it's more than that. The result is more than just what hydrogen does on its own and what oxygen does on its own. Now you have a new entity that has all the characteristics that we know of water. 
For instance, that if you're thirsty and you drink it, your, your thirst is quenched. Or that it freezes if it reaches 100 degrees. Uh, it boils when it reaches 100 degrees or it freezes when it reaches uh, zero. These are entities that you don't find in oxygen on its own or hydrogen on its own. This is a new entity that emerged. This is a, a different way of looking at design. When we say the world has design, you have to look. This is a second order. There's a first order where you look at things on their own. The second order is you have to start linking things together. You cannot just look at every entity on its own and say, this works. Oxygen does what it is. Hydrogen does what it is. And water does what it is. Yeah, water does what it is when you're looking at it, looking at it on its own. But you have to now bring it back to where did it come from? How did, it, how did we get here? And what does it do? And start linking it with the design and other things. How come it is that we're built of 70 or 70? 70 some percent in our bodies of water. What does that do? What does that mean? So there's a design there too. You have to start making those linkages. If I'm talking about the cells that form the liver, okay, that's good. But the liver is still not the liver on its own. The liver has to be part of another system for it to function in that way. Okay, or you look at the heart. Okay, so now you have the heart. You, you got the cells, and we can do the same thing going inside the cells and looking at every part of the cells. But let's say now you have the heart. What else do you need? You need the entire circuitry around the heart to produce your circulatory system so that your blood travels with everything that that includes. Okay, what does that do? That's still not enough. You have to put it in a being where this is the exact order that you need for it to function. I can't take this system and put it in an insect. It wouldn't work. I can't put it in a reptile. It wouldn't work. It has to be this type of being. So this is another order of looking at design. One way is you're looking at things on their own. And this is kind of the simple way. Okay, this is if, if you're only talking with someone and you cannot really go in, in more depth than that. But when someone says the world has design or has purpose, they're not talking about only the simple layer. If you're only talking about the simple layer, you're not talking about the world. You're talking about one entity. You're only talking about the ant. You're only talking, but the ant is part of a much bigger network. We have to explain all those networks, the entire network every aspect of it, and what we call the emergent, the, the complexity that we see. This is the second order of design or teleology. Okay, when you start seeing that, no, no, this is all working together towards a bigger goal. Okay, and what about that goal? Oh, it's actually part of a bigger system producing a bigger goal. Okay, so those goals are, it's like one inside the other. And the more you dig, the more you get out of it. Okay, so this is what we're, when we say that there's design, that there's purpose, that there's order, this is what we mean. There's looking at simple entities, so entities on their own, every entity on its own. Does it look like it was designed to perform something or not? That's one. And then we look at what we call second order design, which is we start linking those entities together. We look at the network in which it is part. Okay, that part is clear. Okay, we still haven't gone into the a lot of the details. So we said that's that's the explanation of the first statement. We said the argument is built from two statements. The world has design, so we explained that one. We explained what we mean when we say the world has design. So we could mean every entity, and we could mean the whole. Okay, and. Every design or design comes from a designer. This part should be obvious and self-evident to a normal human being. No one would accept in their daily lives when they notice something that has design and they recognize design right away that it has come out of nothing. If someone looks at a book and you look, you open the, the book right from the beginning and you see that it has words. The words are formed of letters. So letters have been put together in a way to form words. And then those words have been put together in a way to form sentences. And the sentences have, put, have been put in a way to form paragraphs. And these are more complex thoughts. And the complex thoughts are 
in a certain order, in a certain sequence, one after the other, to give you a much more complex idea or theory or to explain to you, I don't know, history or math or biology. If someone came and told you this book is a result of some explosion that happened in a printing shop, you wouldn't really accept that. This is not how the world functions. The book on its own, you intuitively recognize that it has design. The design means there's an order and there's an intention behind why this letter was put after that one, after that one, after that one, and they, they form a word. The word was chosen. And the next word was chosen to come after this one and the next to form this sentence. And the next sentence was chosen to be put here. Again, every letter, every word, every sentence, and so on and so forth from the beginning until the end of the book. This is the general manner in which we live our lives. We understand what order is and we expect it to come from somewhere that has knowledge, that has intentionality, that has the will, the power to put it together. Right? This is the evidence that we are accustomed to when we live our daily lives. And that's why we say a normal human being, without studying five years of philosophy and ten years of natural science, recognizes this proof intuitively. When you see design, when it's explained to you in a very simple way, you recognize it right away. You know that design must come from a designer. When I look at the book, I can already tell something. Even if I've never met the author, even if the author's name is not written anywhere, I can tell I need an author. And the author has to have a certain amount of knowledge to give me this type of information. They have to have a certain amount of will, intention, power, and so on and so forth. And those are the characteristics of the designer of this book. Okay? Okay. So now to get a little bit more technical, just slightly bit more technical. When we say in very advanced philosophical works, design, it really means two things. I'm, I'm summarizing a lot, but I think that's all we need. All we need to understand from design is that, and there are, there are nuances or different ways of looking at this, but it comes down to the notion of regularity. And there are different types of regularity, of consistency in the world. One of the most important ones, I'm not going to mention all of them, there are three big ones. The one that I think we should always keep in mind and concentrate on is causal. Causal regularity. Causal consistency. What does that mean? Not any cause in the world produces any effect. Specific causes produce specific effects. That's regularity. This is not random. Any normal, same thinking human being should ask the question, where does that regularity come from? Why is it that this specific cause only produces this effect? Why doesn't it produce another effect? Why does fire burn? Where does this come from? The ability to burn. Where does it come from? Why doesn't fire suddenly do? Why doesn't fire suddenly have the same effect as water has? Why does it have its own effect? Why does it consistently behave in the way it does? What does that tell us? That tells us that it has a purpose. It was built, it was made, it was created, call it whatever you want. Its existence is meant for a specific finality, for a specific purpose. So when we say something has design, because someone might question, what do you mean by design, and there's no such thing as design, and you're just constructing it, the regularity in the world is not our construction. If you refuse this argument, you basically just refute, you've refuted or rejected causality. The cause and effect in the world, everything functions in the universe based on cause and effect. Either we re recognize that or we don't. And one of the fundamental things that go with the cause and effect is that not any cause produces any effect. It's not random. It's regular. Actually, it's not just regular. It's extremely, 
absolutely regular. I know for a fact that I cannot produce any effect from any cause. There is a very specific cause for every specific effect. And that applies to our daily lives too, in, in history and economy and, and, and. But the reality of where we want to concentrate on is natural sciences, in the chemical world, in the physical world, in the biological world. We see that it's extremely consistent. That's one. And the second one is purpose. So the, the idea of purpose may sometimes be a little bit complex, abstract. And that's why I'm, I'm giving you one more tool to keep in mind when you talk about design and order, which is the regularity, the consistency that you find in the world. And maybe I'll mention very quickly right now, if for those of you who are into natural sciences, who are interested in these kinds of topics, for instance, there's a book called Just Six Numbers by a, a huge mathematician in the world named Martin Rees. He basically says everything we know in the entire universe is explained by six constants. Six things, six numbers, six forces of nature that are constant. He's an atheist. Sometimes in some interviews he says I'm agnostic. He seems a little bit more open. But he doesn't believe in God. But he does say we need an answer to why we have these six. How come those six are always those six? Why is gravity the way it is? The forces that we have at the quantum level, or the, the, these are the factors, these are the constants that mean that our world was able to produce electrons and protons and neutrons and atoms and eventually galaxies and conscious life on them. If any of these were a little bit different, these six numbers, we wouldn't have the universe that we have today. Some of them, if we change them, we may have a possible something that exists, but definitely not conscious life as we know it today, which is us human beings thinking about this. And some of them, we don't know. Maybe there's a way to vary them. Not sure. That's what he's saying in that book. So you can go and see it. There's a whole, you know, YouTubes and talks and interviews with him. That's one. There's a lot of these. This is just one example. When you have people at that level saying, like, if someone wants to come back and, and wants to work on the idea of randomness and chaos, actually, it's not randomness and chaos. There are consistent, regular things that make the universe possible. The question is, where do they come from? And it's a cheap, lazy, unacceptable answer to say, they just are. And it stops there. Okay, yeah, they just are. Okay, we agree with that. But why? And pushing the argument back one layer, let's say by saying there's an infinity of universes. Okay, you've pushed it one layer, but you still need something. And even if you open the door to the infinity of universes, you still follow the same problem depending on what those other universes are, and we don't need to go into that right now. Maybe in the discussion we can talk about it more. Anyway, so that's about the point of regularity that we notion, we notice in the world. Okay? Now, to understand all of this a little bit more, let's start looking at the world as we know it. So we used a couple of examples. Let's use one more example. So let's say, let's say, what we need is to put 1,000 coins, quarters, in a certain sequence of heads and tails. Okay, so there's a certain pattern that you're supposed to have. This one is very easy. For anyone who has studied a bit of math, this equation would be easy. Why? Because although we have 1,000 pieces, and although there's a sequence to them, Every piece can only is a binary. It can only have two options. It's either heads or tails. We can make this example a lot more complicated if suddenly we said every coin could have six different options, like we would find if we had a thousand dice, or could have 10 different options, or 30, or 200, or a thousand, which is perhaps what we see in a lot of cases in the universe. But let's simplify it. 
What we're talking about is if someone says this sequence of 1,000 coins has to be just in a certain way. The heads and the tails have to be just in a certain way. If anything changes, we have an issue. And you come and you see that it is placed in that way. Do you consider that an act that is considered random, resulting from entropy or chaos? Or do you say that there's there must be design behind it? This is just ones and zeros, but there's a specific sequence. It has to be that sequence, and it's a thousand coins. It would be a very, very weird fluke to come and find that exact sequence with the 1,000 pieces and say, it just is. It just happened like that. We don't really need an explanation. Yeah. The moment you're starting to attach things together, it's it's the second one as well. If I'm looking at one entity, the problem is, if you look at any entity in detail, you're going to fall into the second order right away. And usually the first order, the first layer, is not going to be convincing for someone who wants to argue. They're going to say it's easy to just justify it. It's just the way it is. Hydrogen is just the way it is. I mean, there's nothing to really think about. Unless you want to spend a year studying hydrogen and then you're going to say, actually, no, hydrogen is a very complex thing. We're just starting to understand how to create the quantum theory around helium. We've had the quantum theory for, for decades now. Now they're making the math and the explanations around it work. This is a second element. We're not even at the level where we're combining all the all the other particles that you need, for instance, when you get into the 98th or 100th element on the periodic table. They're still on the other second. The first one, they kind of have it figured out. The math is working and the quantum physics of it are working. The helium is still not that clear. This is where they are in physics today. So it's a big leap to... But that said... To, to cut your discussion short and go directly to something that's evident to the majority of people, you jump into the second order right away. And you say the things by themselves seem to have order, but then when you start connecting them together, they have a lot more order. If you could get away with ha not having order at the first order, at the first layer, at the second layer, you can't get away with that. I need something better, something more solid, acceptable logically. And the majority of people will not accept the argument that it just is. Okay. I'm not going to go into too many details. I think the example is clear. Let me finish it and then we talk. Don't forget your, your question. I mean, we can take examples from things as simple as the seed of an apple tree. And why is it the way it is? And why is it designed so an animal eats the fruit, so the seed is inside a fruit, so it's attractive, so that the animal takes it and goes elsewhere, so that the seeds actually spread, and then you heal the whole cycle, right? Like that's one. Or you see the migration of birds, and why the way it works the way it works. Or you talk about migration of butterflies or fish, completely different. Or you talk about the parts of a human body. We gave a couple of examples and we could talk about that for a very long time. There's documentaries and TED Talks and books written about all of this. So I won't take too much time. I'll mention one example. And I want to finish with this so that we don't keep talking about it. I think the idea is clear. But just to bring it home. And I've used this example before in other talks and people have said that it's very clear to them with this example. I'll start the example by asking a question, because sometimes people say this is not the most convincing proof, it's refutable, it's weak, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So my question, if I'm arguing with someone, is before I start getting into this path of debating or discussing with you, I need to know how much evidence is enough evidence. 
Because if you have taken the position right before I talk that no matter how much evidence I provide to you, that's not enough, then this is a waste of time. But if you're actually going to tell me at some point it's clear that this is enough evidence that we have, a, we have design here, and design needs a designer, there's purpose. This cannot be random chaos producing this result. If you actually tell me there is this openness in your mind, then I'm willing to keep talking. But if you say you're, you've just shut the door that no matter what you're going to give me, I will not accept that as design, as evidence for design, then this is pointless. So I'm going to use this as my entry, my, my, my introduction. The name of my example is how much evidence is enough evidence. Okay, so let's talk about human genetics. How much information do we need to build a human being? They say today, based on the information that we know, if you wanted to put the information we need to build a human being on USB keys, the Titanic ship, which is basically a building, if you don't know how big it is, go look it up. The Titanic ship would be filled with USB keys containing our information 2,000 times. You would need 2,000 Titanic ships filled with USB keys holding information to build a human being. How big is the USB? I'll, I'll use another. I'll, I'll give you more. I'm going to drill it down more for you. Okay? This is too much for us to understand. So I'm going to drill it down a little bit further. Okay? There are people who have been working on understanding the human being for thousands of years. Recently, they realized that human beings are made up of cells. And even more recently, they realized that the cells have a little brain computer area in the middle called the nucleus. And they re realized that inside that brain of the cell, the nucleus, there's the genetic material, the chromosomes and the DNA inside the nucleus. And even more recently, they started reading that genetic code. There's an entire huge project called the Genome Human Project to start understanding that genetic code. So I'm not going to talk about the project of understanding the genetic code, okay? I'm just going to talk about the actual code itself without knowing what it means. Let's say it's gibberish for now, okay? We don't understand. It's a foreign language. So what's the genetic code of human beings made up? It's DNA. DNA is made up of four letters, okay? Four things that we translate in human language as four letters, okay? Those four letters are A, C, T, and G. Anyone who studied a bit of biology knows this. A, C, T, and G. Simple enough. If you take a single human cell from one human being, one human being on earth, you take them, you take one cell, one cell from them, you open it up, you go to the nucleus, you go to the DNA, and now you unroll that DNA. You want to look at the sequence of ACTG. Okay, so these letters can come in different sequences. You have to have three billion of these letters put in a certain sequence to produce the DNA required in that cell. For one cell? Three billion. All the cells have the same copy. Okay? okay. Three, Pardon me? Three billion what? Three billion letters. Okay. Three billion A, C, T, G in different sequences. It could be A, C, C, A, T, G, A. Three Why billion of them. Three billion if it's a no, no, it's not the same thing that repeats. Okay. You don't know, you never know what the next letter is going to be. You never know what the next letter is going to be. But the pattern is the same in all the cells. All the cells of your body have the same information, but everyone knows what to do with that information. Um, everybody is different. Everybody has... Like Slight variations. We're still human beings. So the majority of that is different. Where there are variations, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to go into, I'm not done the example. 
where there are normal variations that make us different human beings, they're tiny. They're tiny, tiny variations, and they have to happen in the exact place, in the exact place, let's say letter number in the three billion, letter number 1.7, you know, blah, 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 billion, there you can have a letter that changes. Those three letters can be different from one person to another, and you can have a black person or a white person. You can have blue eyes or green eyes. Yeah. But if that change happens anywhere else, and I'll, I'll be very specific. Let, let's finish how much we're talking about. Three billion letters is what? What's three billion letters? So they've actually printed them on a, in a book, on a paper. Tiny little dictionary print. This this big, this thick, each, it's 175 volumes, okay? There's a TED talk where the man who's presenting actually has people roll them on the stage, on shelves. So he's telling us, basically, this is the entire genetic code in one human being, found in one cell. 175 big volumes of this these, this sequence. It weighs 450 kilograms, a thousand pounds. It's 262,000 pages. This is the genetic code of a human being. At random, apparently at random, he makes everybody laugh when he says that in his TED talk, because it's not at random. Obviously, he doesn't know this by heart. He goes to one book. He says the number of the book. I don't know. I don't remember it. He picked it up. He's identified a passage. He opens it, and the cameras zoom in. It's a passage of seven letters. Okay? Let's say it's like A-C-C-A-T-G-A, something like that. And he says, he reads it to the whole crowd, and he says, this person is actually very lucky because those letters are in the right sequence. If two of those letters were different, this person would have cystic fibrosis, which is an incurable disease, and they would either die before being born, or they would die right away after. Or have a very difficult life, and they, they would eventually die. Two. Two letters. In the three billion, you would get cystic fibrosis. This is only the stuff that we know. This is the Human Genome Project. This is what they're trying to understand. What do these mean? What do these sequences of letters mean? So they work on them. So this one, they figured out that piece. They don't know what else this, this sequence means. But this one, they figured it out. So if now they take your genetic material, they can, just from reading it, they can tell you if you have cystic fibrosis or not. They can actually tell if you're black and white, how, the, how tall you are, what kind of skin consistency you have, whether you're predisposed to diabetes or not, and so on and so forth. They figured out a lot of this stuff. Yeah, but the point is, I don't know how many of you have written essays and you know how many characters you, you're typing, a thousand or ten thousand, and how many typos you're going to have, and how normal it is to have those typos. If you've had typos in the three billion, in the 175 volumes, in the 262,000 pages you've typed, those two letters, you would have had cystic fibrosis. Okay, so when someone comes and says, this is random, it's because they don't understand what they're saying. You want to tell me the sequence of 3 billion is random? This is why we started by asking, how much evidence is enough evidence? Let's continue this example. So let's say, for a lot of you who watch sports, let's say you're watching someone who is about to shoot in a bullseye on a target, a hundred meters away and they shoot an arrow and they land it right in the target, right in the middle. They shot one shot and they got it in a hole in one. Maybe they got lucky. Lucky shot. What if they do it two times? What if they do it ten times in a row? Every time they shoot, they hit the target. They don't hit anything else, the target. 
What if they, they do it a hundred times in a row? Still lucky? What if they do it a thousand times in a row? What if they do it a million times in a row? What if they do it three billion times in a row? What if they do that multiplied by seven billion people on earth, multiplied by all the fish, the birds, the seeds, the galaxies, animate, inanimate, so that it functions the way it does? At what point do we say, okay, maybe it's not by chance, it's not random, it's not luck, it's not blind. Maybe there's design, maybe there's purpose, maybe there's an actual shooter aiming and actually hitting the target every single time. So when someone says this doesn't prove the designer, or that the designer is knowledgeable, or that the designer has will or power or intentionality, this is why we split the argument into two. I split it into two parts. I said, the first statement is, the world has design. And these were examples of design, and there are millions of them. And two, design needs a designer. So if someone says this proof is weak, which of these two statements are they objecting against? Are they saying that the world doesn't have design? Or are they saying that design doesn't need a designer? So at least we know. If someone says design exists, but it doesn't need designer, then at least we know what kind of mentality we're working with. And if someone says, no, no, the world doesn't even have design. It's all chaos, random, blind, entropy. There's nothing of that in the world. Then that's another kind of discussion. Okay? And that's why even people who are considered hardcore atheists, Stephen Hawking and others, when they come to what they know of the world, in his book, In the Brief History of Time, he says, it is remarkable. What we see in the world is remarkable. But I'm not going to go ahead and say that there has to be a God for it. I'm going to still try to say God is the universe and that's all I'm going to say. And he stops at that. We're going to stop here and then we're going to start the discussion. Sallallahu alayhi wa